Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. In the beginning of this week's Parsha, we get the law of the red heifer, right? So that's what we're coming out of right now are the laws uh, regarding the red heifer, which is um, a means for the people to purify themselves uh, and in particular, the concern is the contamination that happens around death, the tum'ah, the ritual impurity that is communicated through um, the opposite of the life force, which is, of course, death. So some scholars want to link what we're coming out of to what comes next. We're given the means for purification from um, corpse contamination and immediately in verse... In, uh, Verse 1 of the next chapter, we have a significant death occur. All right, so somebody want to read at chapter 20, please. The Israelites arrived in a body at the wilderness of Zim on the first new moon, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Miriam died there and was buried there. The community was without water. And they joined against Moses and Aaron. The people quarreled with Moses, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished at the instance of Adonai. Why have you brought Adonai's congregation into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die there? Why did you make us leave Egypt to bring us to this wretched place, a place with no grain or figs or vines or pomegranates? There's not even water to drink. Okay. Let's stop there for now. So the Israelites come, yes, to Midbar Tzin, to this, the wilderness spot of Tzin. Bachodesh Arishon. So Chodesh here being the beginning of the month, so the new moon. And the people, Yeshev, they sojourn there at Kadesh. Vatamat Sham Miriam, and Miriam dies there, Vatika Versham, and she is buried there. That's all that's said about the death of Miriam. That's all. Nothing about mourning. Remember, we have other places where we're told that the congregation mourns, the whole Edah mourns. No rites of mourning here, no expression of a, you know, outpouring of grief by the people, nothing. We can't generally, and we don't generally in Torah, argue from silence, right? Just because something isn't there doesn't mean it doesn't happen. We have lots of stuff that isn't there. This is where Midrash comes from, right? Is all the stuff that isn't there, the three-day march with Abraham taking Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice him. There's three days. We don't assume no conversation happened. We just don't have the record of it, right? So... It's not to say that they didn't mourn Miriam. It's interesting that the text chooses not to talk about it, right? That nothing, not even a grief period is noted here. So the tradition is going to have something, of course, to say about that, about the absence of any kind of expression of grief by the people. And the rabbis in general tie verse 2 to verse 1. So we get this vav at the beginning of verse 2, which can be conjunctive or disjunctive, right? There are other things vavs do also. Um, but it's it's often a connector. 
So the rabbis use this vav to connect the beginning of verse 2 to the end of verse 1. So Miriam was buried there. And there wasn't water for the congregation. You could use it as a disjunctive vav, but there wasn't water. But she was the one. So this is the midrash. This is the midrash. It's nowhere in the text. That's the midrash moment. Sarah, exactly. They tie the meaning of there being no water to the death of Miriam. There is no indication that they are linked. The tradition chooses to link them, right? That Miriam died and was buried there immediately after it says, and there wasn't any water, or but there wasn't any water. So... Are they connected? Are they not? A lot of the tradition goes there and says, if immediately following the death of Miriam, there's no water and the people are thirsty, that must mean when Miriam was alive, there was water. And this is where a lot of that tradition around Miriam and Miriam's well and Miriam um, having something to do with the fact that the people's thirst was slaked in the desert uh, is born here in this in this textual moment. Couldn't you look at it another way that Miriam died because she was weak and there was no water and thus she failed? Does that make more sense? Um, <laughs> maybe, but they don't go there. Nobody goes there. Okay. <laughs> so David's going there. Um, the rest of the tradition does not, probably because um, there isn't mine for the whole Edah, for the whole community. Right, it sounds like some change in circumstance um, that they locate after her death. If, if there were, uh, if, if Miriam's death was somehow caused by a lack of water, then that the verses would have been reversed. So that I think that's right. I think that they would have said that there was no water, and then Miriam dies. But because it's she dies, and now there's no water. They, the causality for them is is Miriam's death that leads to a, a shortage of water. Okay. You know, the first thing they do is bury her. They bury her, correct? That's a good thing. You want to do that in a hot desert. First thing well, you want to do is bury there somebody. There are other ways you can dispose of bodies. Not for the Israelites. Okay. Pam. Right. Um, that the, let's, if we assume that it was an ant, uh, and we know there's no sentences and paragraphs, Miriam died and was buried there, and the community was without water. Well, then right away they didn't have time to mourn her. They were without water in the desert. So, you know, the other deaths and the the, the coming deaths where we mourn. Um, Aaron and uh, Moshe, they had water. So it was, a, it's, you know, if these are linked, then you can understand they really didn't have time to do All right, so Pam is forgiving the people for not mourning by saying they are distracted with the fact that they are facing a crisis. Yes, yes. And that it is the crisis that interrupts their expression of mourning. Yeah. Okay? So that what we know is that they don't have water. Something very new and unique and different is going to happen. 
the people are in crisis and what do they do? Very new and very different. They kahal, they come together as a kahal to turn on Moses and Aaron. Right? When we get this language of al, they assemble against. Al here means against Moses and Aaron. So, right? Something new and different. Vayayrev ha'am im Moshe. They they start a fight with Moses, saying, Why have you brought the God's congregation into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Right? Meaning we, we have no water for us or for all these animals. Why did you make us leave Egypt to come to this wretched place? A place with no grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. There's not even water to drink. Now, we have seen this type scene once or twice. Yes? Last week, week, for instance. What do we expect to happen next? Based on our understanding, right, of, of all of these traditions of these stories, what what do we expect to happen next? Slapdown. Slap <laughs> right? Every time. So we know, we know Torah, we know the tradition, we know what happens. We know this combination. We know the formula. A plus B equals smackdown, right? We know this. It's not what happens in this episode, which is interesting um, because in another place where we have an issue about water, there is right this sense of God being frustrated with the people complaining and God is, is ready again to do what God does, which is the divine smackdown. So let's look at the fact that we have a different scene here. What happens? Somebody read at six. All right. So Moses and Aaron come away from Mipneha Kahal, away from the face of the throng, right? Because why? Why do they why do they leave the assembly? Where do they go? They go to, they go to talk to God. They go to the Petach Ohel Moed. They go to the opening of the tent of witnessing, yes? Right. Why, why, why leave the people and go to God? Why would they stay? <laughs> right, they, because you could say the last force they want to encounter right now is God, right? The, you could argue, uh-oh, here we go. The people are complaining. They've turned on Aaron and Moses and and asked, why would you bring God's people out of Egypt, that wonderful place, to this awfulness to die? It could be that Moshe and Aaron would want to get as far away as possible <laughs> from what's coming. Moses, what, Ruben? Moses might be uh, uh, concerned. 
concerned that God was going to punish the people and he wanted to be prepared to uh, discuss it with him. Okay. That has happened in the past. Nice. So, and, and what is the textual evidence that that might be true? They fell on their faces at the tent of meeting, right? They might already be in the position to propitiate God and to start being ready to intervene in whatever way is going to be necessary to save the people. Barry? Alter suggests that some of the people invoke Korah, saying that his death instantaneous is preferable to a slow death by thirst. Okay. So just adding to their cheekiness that if we're going to die, why didn't you just swallow us up like Korah? Why have this long, drawn-out, horrible death? Okay? So exacerbating the situation, right? It's bad enough they're complaining, but you start adding levels, and it makes sense that Moses and Aaron are ready for the people to be flattened. So they're on their faces, right, on the ground, the appropriate posture to be in should God appear. And guess what? Guess what happens? The divine presence appears at the, right, at the Ohel. And it, who does it appear to, though? Moses and Aaron. Not the whole people. Interesting. Often, the divine presence appears before all the people to say, here's what's going to happen. Right? This is just a motion, Aaron. And they understand from that encounter, you and your brother Aaron take the rod. What rod? The same staff that he banged the, the rock of the Lord. We don't, so we don't know. Wait, that's one sure sure that is one explanation is that it is the same rod that Moshe used before. What other rod could it be? Okay. We just last week had a miracle where all the twelve chieftains had their rods in front, right? And Aaron's rod sprouts buds and Everything and almonds and all this kind of stuff, right? The flower, the bud, the almonds, all of it overnight. Maybe it's that staff. Why, Laura, argue for me why it might be that staff. Well, the people now have seen that staff do something pretty special. And so they may still associate all those things with the same staff and, and attribute it to God. So it's a reinforce that God is visiting with them. So this miracle had to be God that made that staff blossom. It is also the proof that Aaron is, in fact, the representative who's supposed to be dealing with mitigating the relationship between God and the people. So that the right people are in place. This miracle affirmed that. Tell me about the miracle itself. Of the water of the almond. Of the almond. <laughs> it's a dead staff of wood. That comes to life and gives food. What generally causes that to happen? water particularly in Israel right water everything depends on water it would make a lot of sense that that staff that was dead that was desiccated is used as a symbol of trust me it's going to be okay right and the same way that this blossomed 
presumably needing water generally, don't worry about it. The water will, right, be a that you too will experience what the staff experienced, going from being thirsty and dried out to being fruitful and luscious and watered. Yes? That would make perfect sense, especially since what's the next command? Take take the staff and and assemble the community. Vidibartem el hasela le'enehem and speak to the rock before their eyes. Doesn't say hit it. It says speak, and there's some commentaries that want to say l here. L can sometimes mean in front of, like near or about. It doesn't have to mean directly to. It can. It doesn't have to. So some commentators want to suggest speak in front of the rock, but you're essentially speaking before the people. That's the important part, right? The staff, the symbol, speaking, and then the miracle is going to happen. And in that moment, it is clear that God will have slaked the thirst of the people with God's appropriate authorities represented. Yes? That's how it's supposed to go. Barry? History repeats itself. The almond crop in the valley is the most water-dependent of the crops. Mm -hmm. So today, what to do with the almond crops in the San Joaquin Valley? Right, so the almond tree's always been representative of water and is the first to bloom, the first to blossom in Israel. So if you've got issues with water, you've got issues with your first blooming trees. Okay, so this is how it's supposed to go. So let's see what happens. Thus you shall produce water for them from the rock and provide drink for the Adah and their beasts. Okay, this is how it's supposed to go. Yes, Pam? It does say in the Hebrew, the rock which I was reading an interesting midrash that this um, proves that there's a million rocks in the desert. It didn't say hit a rock. It said the rock. Um, so that that same rock provided water their whole time in the desert. It's Miriam's well. And that that's the same rock, the rock, that Moshe is going to talk to. Okay. Yeah. Why did it stop? If it's the rock, why did it stop producing? Okay, so now something has to happen. That rock used to produce. Miriam dies, and now it doesn't. Okay. All right, what happens? Let's look at nine. Someone read at nine. Moses took the rod from before Adonai, as he had been commanded. Moses and Aaron assembled the congregation in front of the rock, and he said to them, Listen, you rebels, shall we get water for you out of this rock? And Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. Out came copious water, and the community and their beasts drank. All right. So Moshe takes the rod. As he was commanded, whichever one it is, whether it's his that he used for all the miracles in Egypt, you know, to signal it was coming, 
or the miraculously budded almond thingy from last week? Okay, he, he took the appropriate staff and assembles the congregation in front of the rock and then says, does Moshe talk to the rock here? No, Moshe talks to the rebels. The rebels. <laughs> Listen up, rebels. Shall we, from this rock, bring forth for y'all water? Moshe takes the staff, strikes the rock twice, and out comes copious water, and the people and their beasts drink. One would think that this was then, in fact, successful. It was efficacious. Their thirst is slaked. Carol? Did anyone talk about why it was twice? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Richard? You also have the issue that uh, there was the original, you know, God seems to be pretty particular when he gives some instructions. He tends to be pretty particular (laughs) as to how they're carried out. And the instruction in this case was talk to the rock and have so there was nothing in there. Nobody told you to, you know, start berating the people for what they're doing, right? He talked to the rock, and so you know, first he talks to the people, and then he decides to, and then he phrases it in such a way that we're going to produce the water for you, and then he strikes the rock. So when we've seen before, God is pretty particular about wanting God's orders to be fulfilled exactly as ordered. What is our most famous instance of that not happening? The two sons. Who are they? Nadav and Avihu. What happens to Nadav and Avihu when they don't follow exactly the orders? Okay. So there are some commentators who want to say that's exactly what happens here, and that's exactly why what happens next happens next. It's the only possible outcome for not following God's instructions exactly as ordered. So we'll hold that thought. It just seems that God is terrific at special effects. And it sort of seems that you could take a train of thought that says God constantly views the Israelites as the village of idiots. And they wouldn't understand just digging the water and maybe nobody could find it. He has to strike a rock. So is this sort of the consistent view that God minimizes the intelligence, the integrity, and the capacity of the people, and they need to be led by the rabbis that wrote this? I would say it's the other way around. The people who wrote this story feel like God is constantly trying to take care of the people, and the people constantly doubt that God will do so, that they... people who go deeper, like Aviva Zornberg says, because the people can't believe themselves to be lovable, and so they constantly doubt that God will take care of them. It is, they're, they're, they're not treated like the village idiots until what? They act like it. <laughs> they earn it. Over and over. 
the over and over and over, right? There's no water. There's not five seconds before they're turning on Moses and Aaron. And we just had the proof last week with the staff that Moshe and Aaron are, in fact, God's chosen, you know, conduits, whatever. Already now we get right there again, turning on Moses and Aaron. Why did you bring us out here to die? Why do they believe they've been brought out here to die? Time after time after time, they are taken care of. So the, the authors of this text are us. Why is it we constantly whine and complain that this is God not caring for us? Again. And why do we turn on those people who represent right a connection to the wisdom tradition, to teachings, to history, to... All those things. That's who we round on, always. So the text is written by us. Um, But this time, uh, God did not punish the Israelites. Correct. Correct. So this time... They rebelled this time. They were thinking of Miriam's death. It was all tied back to... So hold on to that. That's exactly where Sheldon um, Aviva Zorenberg is going to go. So we're going to get there. That's exactly where she goes. Connecting Miriam's death to the fact that they're not punished. So we're going to hold that and go to what Richard was talking about. Not following God's instructions exactly. So where do they go off the rails? Where does Moshe leave the reservation? Starting at Shimuna Hamorim. Listen up, rebels. Right? That's that's the first place Moshe leaves the program. All right. What does Moshe say, in effect? Listen up, you rebels. He has just called them names. He is their leader. It is his job to care for them. It is his job always to fill them with courage and with hope and with whatever. And he has just called them names. So according to the tradition, that's the first mistake is that Moshe derides them, right? Moshe, if Moshe is going to call them names, forget it, they're done, right? Like, because he knows that that, that's, that's not his role. I can't help but notice that if you take out the vowels, what is Morim, rebels, how would you read it without the vowels? Miriam. I mean, I don't have any commentary on that, but I I can't help but notice that without the vowels, there's no vav in there. It's a dot, right? So hamorim becomes hamiryam. Because you say, listen, Miriam. You listen up, you Miriams. Is it? What does it say? Okay. <laughs> All right, so maybe, you know, y- y'all who are connected to Miriam, she would not have wanted you to behave like this. She had faith. She had trust. She led the women in dancing. They already had their timbrels packed. That's how they had timbrels in the desert. They were packed long before, right? So when they had to run out, they already had timbrels with them. That's the Miriam we're talking about, right? And so using the the consonants of her name 
against them, right? She would not want this from you, you rebels. So mistake number one, according to, to the tradition, Moshe rounds on them and calls them names. Shall we bring forth for y'all water from this rock? Richard points to number two mistake, which a lot of the tradition wants to lift up as the moment Moshe is condemned. When he says, shall we bring forth water from you from this rock? Because what does that imply? That it wasn't God. It was, in fact, Moshe and Aharon. Why would that be enough to condemn Moshe? Why is that so bad? Because it substitutes ordinary human beings so that's bad, but what, why is it so bad? It would be there would be another god other than the one god. That's like the worst thing you could do. Well, they, but remember, early monotheism believed there were other gods other than Yudhe Vavhe. Yes, but so if Moshe and Aaron say we, but we, we bring forth water from the rock, that doesn't imply. Yudhe another god, it doesn't seem to implicate gods. If we're bringing forth the water, why is that such a problem that Moshe does it with this people? Well, he wants to be God in the place of God. He's like, uh, like uh, how do you say, denying God almost. Yes. Why is it so bad with this people? Where do they see a human leader who's a god? Thank you. This is the problem. He's dealing with Egyptian slaves. All they know in their 400-year history, because they have short memories, um, is Pharaoh as the son of the god who has the ability, along with his magicians to affect exactly this kind of thing. Moshe, by suggesting, shall we bring forth water, is suggesting he's a magician. It's not about other gods. It's about, I have the power to manipulate occult forces with my staff and a bunch of words, and boom, you have magic. That is the worst possible thing they could do with this people who keeps backsliding. They just referenced Egypt, right? Just this moment. And he turns around and does something that is representative of their experience and the forces and the powers at work in Egypt. That is the critical moment where Moshe loses his right to lead the people into the promised land. This is, remember, the generation that's going, going to be going right it's not the rock. into the land. You, 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 <clears throat> you can't in any way allow Egypt to be present here. They, they can't move on if that happens. Meaning, it's not their fault if you set yourself up in this way. You will lead the people astray. That is the moment that it's over for Moshe. How, how can we say, or the rabbis say, that that's the moment when the next sentence 
Because we don't know the reason. Okay, so so hold on. We're, we're going there. Um, but it's not clear in that sentence. So we're going to go there. Um, so Moshe raises his hand and does what? Strikes the rock twice. Elsewhere, Moshe strikes the rock and it brings forth water. It brings forth water here as well. So is that a problem that he struck it? Some commentators say no. He struck it before, and striking it here actually brings the water. Okay, no problem. That's not the moment. It's the moment before. Other commentators want to say, to Richard's point, uh, that is not what God said. God did not say, strike the rock. God said, talk to the rock. You don't get to decide one miracle to the next just because it worked one time before, right? It's going to happen again. You, you, Moshe, don't get to decide that. Paula? I'm, I'm thinking that to me, this sounds like a commentary on hubris. And because when, how is Moshe when, when being readers, proud? When readers choose to lead the people and the people follow to the wrong place and the leader says, takes on the aspect talking in the place of God and I spoke to God and now God is telling me to do this and come on guys let's go here and we've seen that many a time in history so you're suggesting that it's not so much that Moshe is setting himself up as something it's that he interprets what God said when it's not what God said, and that that is what often gets leaders into trouble, right? That yes. that Moshe saying, right? Moshe starts doing a bunch of stuff that God did not say should happen, and that the minute we put ourselves into the position of translating, then it is chutzpahdik, it is arrogance of the most dangerous kind in leaders. Okay. Yes. 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 Oh, Richard? But, but, to, but to your point earlier that uh, sort of the big problem is uh, Moses setting himself up as an Egyptian magician in this, in this particular instance. In prior instances where he used the rod to do things, the rod itself was a prop. And so, so it was that use of the rod was consistent with sort of the old Egyptian type of magic where the where the where the priests did things with their spells and with different objects and things like that. The thing that makes this different is the only purpose of the rod was, you know, the rod is the symbol for assembling everybody. So you need the rod for that. But everything else is I'm not even gonna, we're not even doing any magic. We're just gonna so to your point to take what you said and twist it a little bit some commentators suggest the rod in all the other plague things so that it would be distinguished from Egyptian magic because remember the magicians do the same thing they throw down their staff and it eats the snake so 
that's magic. We can't have any of that, right? That's not going to happen in Israel. So, in the people of Israel. So, what distinguishes the magicians and their staffs and using magic from Moshe raising his staff and the miracle is affected? What's the difference? Do we know? Anybody know? Moshe is always silent. He He doesn't cast a spell. There has to be words in Egyptian magic. You have the spell, you have the incantation, and then you have the action that affects it. That's magic. When Moshe uses the staff, it is a symbol of get ready, but Moshe is completely silent. Which means that it is God who really does it. Correct. It, it's not magic. It's the divine Yudhei force that does it. How does that bear, what does that say about this then? This is where some people go then. What's the problem here? He's speaking. Moshe speaks. Shall we bring forth water? Boom. Uses a staff. That is representative of magic. God told him to speak. But not to use the staff. Right? So by speaking and then hitting the rock, doing an action, he has in fact set himself up as a magician. And that that is the moment of heresy <coughs> that, to Paula's point, <coughs> could lead the people in a direction that would undo everything this God has been trying to do for 38 years. Right? Get this people out of their Egyptian ways of seeing things and be in relationship to this invisible force called yod heh Or why is staff used Um, the word is mate. And it means rod or staff. Correct. Correct. All right. Um, yes. My, my recollection might be wrong. But I thought <laughs> that in all previous cases, um, Moshe was very careful to say God was going to do all these things. Behold, Israel, the God who blah, 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 well, blah, blah. With respect to the plagues, God's going to do this, God's going to do It'd be interesting to go back and see how many times that happens. Clearly, in the, doesn't. clearly he what, doesn't. What is the next and it's worse. And the next sentence is, and oh, by the way, you didn't do this. <laughs> right? Right. So it looks, if you stop at verse 11, it looks like everything's copacetic. The people have their water. Their thirst is slaked. Right? Everything's good. But, P-U-T, we turn to verse 12. Somebody read. Can I just ask a quick question? Of course. Uh, Moses raises his hand. What, what's the Shorish word to live? Uh, Where are we? Eleven. Verse eleven. Bayarim, Bayarim, Moshe, Larom, Ramah. Is Miriam's name in there? Ah, interesting. If there were a mem in front of that yud, that would do it. Yeah. Right? Almost. I mean, you got a, you got three of the. I mean, it's kind of all over here. Mayim is the word right before that. Vayarem. I, I think you're right. The the alliteration is clearly there about Miriam. All right. So wait. Um. Don't leave here. Take this before you go, Leila. Oh, okay. 
<clears throat> but make sure you get that. All right. Um, so, someone read it, verse 12. <clears throat> Um, okay, so Laura, do you understand why it's still unclear? So we, it is very clear, right, that God, God does not blame the people for this. God slakes their thirst, returns to Moshe and, and Aaron, right, and says, Lo hemantembi, you didn't have faith in me. You didn't trust me. Lahakdisheni le'ene b'nei Israel, to sanctify me before the eyes of Israel. We yes. That's perfectly in alignment with the fact that in the preceding paragraph, Moses uses the word "shall we, shall Aaron and I get water out of this rock." So that's God enabled us on this path to get water. It almost seems like they're saying we are more right so that's what we were just saying about that's the possible moment the striking is the possible moment someone asked the question susan was it you asked the question twice you that he hits it twice so some of the tradition locates that being the moment that he loses his temper that moshe is so frustrated with the people Right, that Moshe goes against God's specific instructions, not just once, but the evidence that he has lost his temper is that he hits it twice. Right, that he's he's angry, and to try to affect something as the leader, speaking for God, speaking as God's emissary, to take what God said and, in a moment of anger, use it. Right, use your anger to do what the people are going to think is the will of God. Is huge transgression. This is even though he's just lost Miriam. Ah. Ah. The word of Torah, the line of Torah, just after Nadav and Avihu are incinerated, the line of Torah after that is Vayidom Aharon, and Aharon was silent. It seems that. It doesn't matter what the leader experiences. You have to serve the people. You are not entitled to the luxury of your own grief when you are on the job. And it is a very, very interesting thing to explore. Um, we talked a lot about in, a lot about this in rabbinical school, right? You know, studying these texts, going, well, wait a minute, <laughs> like in, that. Truly, one's own private experience of grief 
is interrupted by the fact that one still has to serve. And it seems the tradition's clear that doesn't matter. They needed to be doing their job. Um, and we're going to go... We're going to go to um, Zorenberg, who, like I said, Sheldon has a reading that does bring in the death of Miriam as a mitigating factor in all of this. So, yeah, we're talking about uh, Moises, like you feel the whole time from the beginning that he's really angry. He's, he's done with also dealing with the people again, of, you know, coming to complain and complain and complain, and now Miriam died and all this stuff. So you feel a lot that, but he's not alone. What about Aaron? What is he saying in the story? Is like he's supporting Moses. Is like stopping him. We don't. Hear. We don't know. We don't hear Aaron's side. So <clears throat> the Aaronid tradition gets, we think, added. Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron and Aaron and Aaron. The Aaron gets added in by the priestly writer. That originally this wasn't a story about Aaron. It was about Moshe. And it was, this was a Mushite tradition that the Aaronid you know, clans, as they gain power and are interested in preserving power, add Aaron in. So that he really isn't a full character. He's kind of the progenitor of the priests inserted back into the story. So it's a, it's a good close reading, but you... You see that we rarely hear from Aaron. So once once would have said, Okay, I misunderstood the instructions possibly, but twice is like, wait, so if you hit it once, why didn't you step back and wait to see? So this is this is the moment of of lack of faith. So the verse explains clearly that therefore you will not lead this congregation into the land that I have given them. Right? It acknowledges that the Israelites quarreled with God here. So it's not that they didn't challenge God. They did. But it says that God's sanctity was affirmed. How can that be if God just charged Moshe and Aaron with not sanctifying God? Right? So how how were they how was God sanctified? God just got done saying you didn't have <coughs> enough faith in me to sanctify me and before the people, right? Who's them? Yeah. Hmm? Sanctity was affirmed through them. Who is the them? <laughs> Good reading, Reuben. Exactly. Through which or through whom God was sanctified? Maybe. What if it's Moses and Aaron? What if it's God was in fact sanctified through Moses and Aaron? How? Because they're going to die. So this goes to the Nadav and Avihu parallel. God was sanctified because Nadav and Avihu were consumed. So possibly it's after the condemnation of them to die before going into the land that God is like, now I have been sanctified through them. 
just as with Nadav and Avihu. Okay, one possibility. What's another possibility? That regardless of what Moshe and Aharon did, God's sanctity was affirmed through the waters. That in slaking the thirst of the people, God indeed was sanctified. Even though Moshe and Aharon didn't follow instructions, that's a separate issue. That's certainly possible. Why? Because the community had not yet had time to depict the leaders. So if they had been if they had been zapped for disobeying orders, then then the entire community would have been thrown into jeopardy. Interesting. And so although it seems it's everything's ready to go once Aaron dies. But that doesn't take place until sometime after this event. So maybe they're not ready for their leaders? To leave them so soon after Miriam? Okay. So let's look at Aviva Zornberg from her book, Bewilderments. And go to page 197, which starts with the words, which does not, the page that says, which does not speak or hear. Yes? The top sentence on the page says, which does not speak or hear. All right. Do you the see? The right side of the page says 196 at the top, so we're looking at the right side of that page. Flip the page over. Well, I don't yeah. Rashi emphasizes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. That's the page. Where it says Rashi emphasizes. Yeah. The second paragraph begins, Rashi emphasizes. Yes? Everybody there? Yeah. yeah. All right. So Rashi's going to focus on the public nature of the scene. But it's, it's interesting where she she ha- where she quotes Rashi, I love this. So, drop down to what after all is the difference in the middle, of, you know, like towards the end of that paragraph. What after all is the difference between striking a rock and speaking to it? One might say that striking the rock is precisely what is meant by speaking to it. How else does one communicate with a thing that is impervious to words? A blow with a stick is just the language that the rock understands. Maybe Moshe understood the command to be speak to the rock. Well, rocks don't have ears. So how do you speak to a rock? You bang on it. That's the language of rocks. That Okay, that makes sense. But I love where this goes. But Rashi's scenario of sanctification is intriguing. The rock's obedience to God's words would have produced a thoughtful response in the people who would have seen themselves in the place of the rock. By an imaginative act of projective identification, they would have come to recognize the power of God's word in their own vulnerable and dependent lives. Their own human situation would have been illuminated by the miracle of the rock. The purpose of the exercise was the impact it would have on the people's eyes. Failing to speak Hitting the rock, Moses misses the point. 
The imaginative process is short-circuited. The double blow of the rod induces no self-reflection in the people. I love this. So what is Rashi saying? Rocks don't have ears. Rocks can't hear. Rocks can't listen and respond. But what if it does? Then the people might get it that, oh, God's word can cause even something that doesn't hear to respond. Maybe we can too. Maybe our own hard-hearted, stiff-necked people, selves, character can also be penetrated by the divine word in such a way as to cause miraculous, fruitful amazingness to gush forth. And that that's what Moses short-circuited. Gotta think about that. (laughs) (laughs) That it wasn't just he didn't follow orders, it's that he wrecked the whole thing and said, the only way you can deal with rocks is to beat them. Meaning, you people are so stubborn and so unlovable and so unworthy that I might as well take out the taskmaster's whip and that's how I can get your attention, apparently. Sounds like great modern psychoanalytical thinking. Right? Love that. From Rashi in Provence. You gotta love that. In the ten hundreds. Project yourself into the rock and Moses, you are supposed to in this way and when the projection will happen right so how do you feel as the rock right that rashi in the year 1000 you know i mean 10 then 10 something is is coming at it from this perspective of the people are supposed to put themselves in the position of the rock that was the whole point is to project onto the rock their own identification and therefore to understand what's possible from the word of god and again, that's how they were treated as slaves. Correct. Correct. And Moshe does the same thing out of frustration, out of whatever that the taskmasters do. I'll just beat you until you get it. That's bad enough, right? That he's treating them that way and should have used words instead. Rashi seems to take it one step further. They were supposed to experience what's possible through speech. That God's word could bring them to the miraculous. Because that's all they're, that's what they're supposed to have going into the land is God's word. That's what's supposed to help them live lives of fruition and nourishment and goodness and righteousness and justice and compassion and today of all days, equity. Yes? And Moshe destroys the whole experience in his frustration and in his and in his rage. So, and then calls them names, right, <laughs> at, at, at the same time. All right. So go to page 198. That's clearly marked on your corner. I didn't cut that one off. I'm usually pretty good at cutting off the numbers, but... <clears throat> Instead of criticizing the people for their complaints, God turns God's attention to the leaders. God's glory appears on this occasion, Laura, 
not to the people, but to Moses and Aaron. This is a portentous moment for the leaders rather than the people. For the first time, the focus of God's scrutiny shifts. It is Moses who was held accountable for God's sanctity in the people's eyes. Right? And as a result of this judgment, Aaron will die in the near future. Moses will lead this people through the battles of Transjordan and the final months of the 40th year. Miriam has already died just before our narrative. Moreover, Midrashic tradition connects her death with our narrative, right? We know about this, right? The pivotal narrative then crystallizes an important motif in the history of the wilderness. It is the turning point, an ending and a beginning. The three leaders fade from the scene and the people reach a moment of transition. Yes? So everybody who was present for all that other signs and wonder stuff, everybody who was in Egypt, including the leaders, will now be dead. Drop down to the very last two lines of that page. The poignant moment between death and life, however, carries its own mystery For we suddenly become aware that 38 years have passed without us noticing. We don't have any narrative for 38 years. The reader all of a sudden gets it that we're two years out from the four. What what happened to the intervening 38 years? How about y'all? When I count how many years it's been since my college graduation, it cannot possibly be. 20 years how could that be right and it's so behind the scenes a generation has vanished into the into the sands there is something uncanny about this hidden passage of time with its harvest of so many deaths so so for aviva zornberg we're going to look at yael shai quoting this part of Aviva Zornberg. Her use of words with its harvest of so many deaths. She's just... Birth and death. It's, she's, she's just genius. What can I tell you? Genius. I'm glad, Susan, that you appreciate it. She, her poetry, right? Her prose, her intellectual soundness. She's just one of the greats of our time. And I gave up my copy somewhere along the line of Yael Shai. Thank you. We already covered basically the first the first page. Turn to the second page of Yael Shai's teaching, Rabbi Shai's teaching. So this generation, if it's 38 years later, they've lost a whole generation before them, right? So they've lost their their biological parents, and now they're losing their communal parents as well. This is the moment, right, that, that Aviva Zornberg calls the big transition. It all pivots on this moment in our people's history, When Miriam dies, writes Rabbi Shai, the Israelites cannot access life. 
They lose not just their source of drink, they also lose the water it takes to shed tears of which there are no record. So this goes back to tying Pam, her death, to what's happened for the people. So in in Rabbi Shai's deeper kind of symbolic reading, it's not just that they're distracted by a crisis and don't have attention to grieve. Miriam sucked the life out of the people. She was their symbol of life and fertility or you know healing and water and all those things. And when she dies, the whole generation's just died off. Now she dies. For them, it's too much. And they can't even grieve. They don't have access even to the life, to the water it takes to cry, which is a really profound reading, I think. And goes to, Sheldon, your point about why doesn't God get angry with the people? And this is part of why for some of the traditions that I just think is so beautiful. The people fall into the void between the sentences the dried out, desiccated place with no mother, no water, and no ability to cry or grieve. This is real, deep grief, that that next paragraph. This is the feeling when the bottom drops out, as it has in many of our lives, and all there is for miles around is desert and lifelessness. How are the Israelites supposed to move on? How are we when these moments in life present themselves to us? Well, interestingly, God in Chukot does not turn on the whining Israelites in anger, as God has in most other instances of their shaky faith, perhaps recognizing their grief beyond words, their existential thirst. The divine turns towards the Israelites with compassion and the generosity of new life, water from a rock. Which, what was the movie last night? Water from a Rock. Wow. But, but it was music, which was the water. Music from the Holocaust? Yeah. A, music, a, a woman who was a musician, and, and with her musicianship, she got through the Holocaust So hold on to that as we read. Um, Rabbi Shai quotes Stephen Levine from his book, Unattended Sorrow, who says, we store fear and disappointment, anger and guilt in our gut. Our belly has become fossilized with a long resistance to life and to loss. Each withdrawal, each attempt to numb our grief turns the belly to stone. Have mercy on this pain you have carried for so long. The pain that sometimes makes you want to jump out of your body. So the rock here is a symbol, right, of the people's deep and profound and very real grief. That when we lose, what we tend to do is tighten and harden because we think that's how we're going to get through it. That's how we're going to survive it, right? We we hunker down and we tighten up and we harden to protect, right? That part of us that is devastated by loss, by betrayal, by shame, by fill in the blank. 
So uh, this is a beautiful Mary Oliver poem that I'll let you read on your own if you turn over the page. It's a beautiful, beautiful poem that I'm going to use next time we have Yisker. But drop down below that. At times of great loss, going on with living Levine rites often feels like sacrilege. Nevertheless, it is in our own time the work we do to honor the life we share with all who have ever been born and will ever die. By refusing to put down or numb the grief, by breathing into it, softening it over and over again, we allow a path of healing to emerge, which lets us honor the person who has died with our own life. God finds water for the people when they thought there was none left to be had. Gushing water. So much water, it fills them and their animals. It brings them back to life and gives them the strength to continue their journey. Where all life what? Starts life starts in water. water. Absolutely. Yeah. And Miriam, the mother, is gone. And the water that is life is gone. But you are grown up and you can create your own life. You know, you have the power of life. It seems. A, like you said, it's a transition to be like a ritual and transition. And now I'm the adult. It seems that God understands they are at that critical moment. Yeah. That, and if no matter what Aaron and Moshe do, God has to bring forth water from the rock in order to help the people move on from the mother and being dependent on Miriam, the mother, for water. And that that's right. God gets it that he'll deal, she'll deal with Moshe and Aaron later <laughs> or in a different way. But right now, what's important is that the people access water for themselves, for their own relationship with God. The word of God will bring this. They can't look to their parents anymore. They're gone. And it is the paradigmatic moment of the mother's death with Miriam's death. And exactly right. that they God gets it that now they have to be able, if they're going to create something in this new world, this new civilization based on righteousness and ethics and morals and values and not Pharaoh and not who's the strongest and who can beat up the other people, right? If if that's going to happen, they must step into their own story. They must become the heroes of their own story and not look to these three leaders anymore to do it. Sarah? Uh, the last three lines in the paragraph under... Uh, the poem mm-hmm. uh, symbolizes not numbing the grief by being a rock, but allowing the, the allowing the grief to be felt and seen over and over again. And that is a process that some Holocaust survivors go through of loosening the numbing and being able to grieve losses and to feel like more human fully again. Right? That takes time. 
Yeah, all right. It takes it takes time and it it takes time and it takes commitment, doesn't it? Because it's so much easier to numb and turn away from that pain, and a lot of people do. It takes the support of community. It hundred percent takes. Who can allow that to happen and don't say, "Well, get on with it." This was seventy years. And partly that's where Zornberg locates all this language about the entire community. Kol ha'eda, that it requires community for us to be able to soften into grief and to then serve with our own lives rather than seeing living as a betrayal, right? As a sacrilege, the guilt, survivor guilt. David? Is this the link, Zornberg's interpretation, that gets you from God's harsh I think it's a it's a mitigating circumstance, you know, that it's the same whining, complaining. And the mitigating circumstances, this is a new generation who've lost their parents and now just lost the symbol for them of of healing of everything positive of everything good like that that it's just too much for them and it's out of that that they are you know freaking out and that that seems to be enough of a mitigating circumstance ah well that's a very good conversation to have with all of the mafarshim all of our commentators for someone like rambam for maimonides god can't change there is god is the unmovable mover God is the prime force. God, he is a, a neo-Aristotelian, neo-Platonic view. God can't change. God is perfect and unchanging. So if you were Rambam, you need to do a lot more stuff, right, to, to get to this place. Others of us would say, I think, I don't know that it's God has changed. It's that this is a different situation. God is responding to a different reality on the ground. This is a grieving, flipped out, second generation who you know who are completely so lost their first generation were just whining complaining no grief no soul just bad or again you don't believe me again again but and this is a new generation that's kind of having its own existential freak out and it seems understandable because they've lost their parents and what does it mean when we lose our parents and have to step into truly being the generation ready to, to to be the leaders of our own lives. Also, you know, it reminds me of so many different kinds of parent-child or teacher-child relationships. In the, that first generation, God needed to show them all in a very huge way who was in charge. You know, teachers start the year strict, and then they can kind of loosen up towards the end of the year when everybody already knows they're going to take care of me, I, I need to behave, but this is a relationship. And you know, similarly with, with a parent and a child, there's different ways that you're going to respond depending on the circumstances. So I just don't see it as a change necessarily, but as a seeing different circumstances. So this Shabbat, may we set the Kavanah and our intention for breathing into the belly, breathing into our hard and tight 
places that we might experience our own grief, our own uh, suffering, our own aches and losses so that we might ourselves soften enough to have come forth from us and from our Eda, our community, life-giving forces. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.